together. And now I invite you to take a Bible to open it to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. This is a book in the Old Testament. And we're continuing a series in the book of Ezekiel for us at the beginning of the year here at Lakeside. You'll find this if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you on page 723. It's a longer chapter, so we're just going to cut out a little bit of the middle, but read most of it. But if you haven't been with us from the beginning of this series, um, Ezekiel is someone who was lived in a very, very unique time, a time of transition in Israel's history. And he was born and raised to be a priest and was trained his whole childhood and then young adulthood to be a priest in the temple of Israel. But when he was 25 years old, just five years away from being able to finally fulfill his duties and work in the career that he'd been training for, the country that he was belonged to was at war with Babylon, and Babylon was increasingly winning and eventually made it all the way to Jerusalem and surrounded Jerusalem. They weren't able to conquer it initially, but what they did do is take captive thousands of people and sent them off to Babylon. And Ezekiel was one of these people. And so now, everything he'd been trained to do and everything he longed to do, he wasn't able to do anymore. No prospects of being able to serve as a priest in a temple in Babylon. So everything had to change for him. And the way this book unfolds, it's one of the longer books in the Bible, but from chapters 1 to chapters 33 is describing everything from that time of captivity to then a period of time later, about a decade later, of when Jerusalem is actually conquered. That happens in chapter 33. He gets the report that now Jerusalem is not only surrounded, but it is in fact consumed. It's destroyed. So chapters 34 all the way to the end, then totally shift in tone. Everything is before and after. Before the judgment and then after the judgment. And so what we get in chapters 34 to the end are prophecies about the future. And what they contain are some of the most amazing promises of God to do good to people who've had what we can't even quite comprehend, the level of trauma that the experience would have been uh, for these people in the destruction of Jerusalem. So here we are in chapter 36, and there's a promise to people who are broken, who are desperate. If we had a contemporary equivalent, this is like good news coming to the city of Aleppo, a city that has been completely destroyed by warfare. So chapter 36. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel. And say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy said of you, Aha, and the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, precisely because they made you desolate and crushed you from all sides, so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations." And you became the talk and evil gossip of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, the ravines and the valleys, the desolate wastes and the deserted cities, which have become a prey and derision to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who gave my land to themselves as possessions with wholehearted joy and utter contempt, that they might make its pasture lands a prey. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and hills, the ravines and valleys, thus says the Lord God, 
Behold, I have spoken in my jealous wrath because you've suffered the reproach of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I swear that the nations that are all around you shall themselves suffer reproach. But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they will soon come home. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown, and I will multiply people on you. The whole house of Israel, all of it, the city shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt, and I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful. And I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times, and will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I will tell, I will let people walk on you, even my people Israel, and they shall possess, and you shall be their inheritance, and you shall no longer bereave them of children. Thus says the Lord, because they say to you, you devour people, and you bereave your nation of children. Therefore you shall no longer devour people, and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord. And I will not let you hear any more the reproach of the nations, and you shall no longer bear the disgrace of the peoples, and no longer cause your nation to stumble, declares the Lord. Now we'll jump down to verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you've profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I'll make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the garden of Eden and the waste and the desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. And that's where we'll stop. Continues along those lines. But here we see the promise to a people who are far, far removed from their home and who most recently have heard that their home has been destroyed. And the promise of God that one day there will be a restoration. First, the prophecy is to the mountains of Israel. It's to the land. It's to the geography. To say to the place that's been destroyed that it will be recovered. 
but in that recovery also a people brought back to that place to fully inhabit it and to experience the flourishing of it. This is what Ezekiel gets to tell the people who are wondering if there is any future, who for most of them would assume that because of the most recent news, they could never recover, that there would never be hope for a future, that the news couldn't be any worse. And so what they would think of as the end, Ezekiel is called to say to them, no, this is not the end. God is able to do something from here in his own strength, in his own ability, that you or I could not do on our own. And one of the things that he can do is he can bring us back home. And and that's what he says to them, to their home, to our home, that there's going to be a time where they will be able to return. And to to understand the, the good news of this, this longing to be back home, is throughout, he reminds them, they'd done a whole bunch of things to get them kicked out of home. And that home wasn't a safe place because of their rebellion, because they were not walking in the statutes of God. And so though they longed for it, like all of us do, they knew themselves not at peace. And God comes to them and says, though you feel like you've done things that make it impossible for you to ever go home again, there's going to be a day when you can return home. All of us will have had a varied experience of what our home life was growing up. Some of us, when we hear that phrase and we think about it, we, we go back to memories that are mostly good and sweet. Some of us don't. It brings up a different set of memories. But even for those of us for whom home is not a place of longing or a place that triggers for us mostly good memories, still deep in our hearts, Part of the frustration we feel with that and part of the pain and the hurt that we feel is that we know what we longed for it to have been. If it wasn't what we wanted it to be, there is still something that God has put into your heart, into my heart, that each and every one of us know what it is that we were really longing for in the experience of home. What it was meant to be. I was fascinated in a a testimony. There's a a program on NPR called The Moth, which is just a storytelling hour. Excuse me. People come up and share uh, basically personal testimonies of things that they've gone through, and it's a weekend program, and they can share almost anything. But they stand up, they share their story, and uh, people rate them, and then kind of the better the story, the the more they move on. So it's sometimes when you're listening it, you're wondering, like, how much is thrown in for dramatic effect, and you're hoping to make it to the next round, so you maybe add some elements to your story that that aren't entirely true. But yesterday, there was a fascinating story, because it just didn't follow the usual script of what they play. Uh, But this man was talking about his experience at the age of 12, his family kind of falling apart, and in falling apart, that he just kind of got left to the wayside, that none of the adults cared about him anymore and their inability to get along with each other. They just kind of went their own way and focused on themselves so that from the age of 12 to 14, he got to get away with, thank you, Jeremy, he got to get away with almost anything. He had no bedtime, no expectation to show up to school, could watch anything he wanted to do, experience life however he wanted. And for him, it was totally normal from the age of 12 to 14. And so what he goes on to do is just kind of talk about how weird he, as he experienced other people who had boundaries and rules. 
until one day at the age of 14, someone invited him over to his house and said, why don't you come and have dinner with us? And so he went over and he said the strangest thing, you know, this guy's dad picks us up and he says, how was your day today? It's like, what's his problem? You know, why is he trying to control my life and ask me, you know, how my day was? And then they go home and they engage in several activities. He says, now do your homework. You got, you know, make sure you do your homework before, before dinner time. So again, what, how do you live in this kind of a controlling environment? Like who could, who could tolerate something like this? And then eventually it's mealtime and they sit down for a meal. And he says, okay, now you guys can go play. Play whatever you want. And at 9.45 he comes around and he says, now you got 15 minutes. 10 o'clock, lights out. Looks again like, you do this every single day? How, how could you possibly live in this situation? 10 o'clock comes. You got to go to bed. And then the mom comes around and says, you know what? And when you change to get ready for bed, I'll take all of your clothes and I'll wash them. And so they'll be ready for you clean in the morning. And that was something he had also commented on earlier from 12 to 14 with no one watching him. He only had to change clothes every, you know, a week or so before he smelled enough that he finally had to do it because no one was paying attention to him. No one was observing him. But then he woke up the next morning and experienced that. He just asked his friend, he says, is this what it's like every day? Do they do this every day? And he said, yeah. He said, could I stay here again? He said, actually, my parents were talking to me about that, and they said, you can stay here whenever you want. And so eventually the school, whenever they had an issue with him, instead of calling his own parents, would call his friend's parents because they had an expectation that they would do something about it. And so he goes on to share that now, as an adult, what he does for his own sister, who's a single mom, is to be an uncle who is there for his nephew and nieces and to provide the same level of structure. But he said, I, I just of anybody was the most surprised at how freeing it was. And the moment I experienced it, realized what I was longing for the entire time. And God puts that in your heart and mind to long for in home, not just a familiarity of a place, but a safety and a security to be completely yourself. Where you are known by other people and there's safety and freedom in that to be known. Uh, I was also fascinated to read uh, so the 2016 award for Athlete of the Year for Sports Illustrated went to our own LeBron James, and so they did then a full feature story on him that came out in December. And the whole beginning of the article was fascinating because it described all of Akron. So anyone reading this from New York or Los Angeles you know, probably would have skipped over the first page. But if you haven't read it yet, go read it in Sports Illustrated because the first page is all about Akron because it describes that he and his wife will probably twice a year will wait until way, way early in the morning and will grab one of their vehicles that's the most nondescript so people won't tell who they are and they're hoping that most people are in bed and they just drive around to Akron to every single home he ever lived in. And they, he recalls the experiences of those places, many of them not good, many of them experiencing things that he does not want to remember, but intentionally goes around to all of them to remember where he came from and that whatever he's experiencing now, whatever he's able to afford now, whatever he's able to do now, to not forget where he came from, but in a similar way, this acknowledgement that even though his experience was complicated and varied, 
There's this internal longing and desire that even when we experience the bad end of it, we know exactly what it is that we wish we would have had. And God's given that to your conscience and to mine, this longing for home that's not just a place of geography, but in that security and safety. Those of you who are teachers know, if you have a student come into your classroom and you find out that this is the fourth school that they've been in and this is the fourth home that they've lived in this year, you just know automatically it's going to be more difficult to provide a quality education. Because that kind of shifting and changing affects us in ways that we can't quite realize. And here, this isn't just an individual. This is an entire nation that's been displaced from their home. And they're in Babylon, a place they don't want to be, surrounded by all kinds of idol worship that is to them offensive. But the promise comes to them that there will be a return home. And isn't that how Jesus explained salvation when he told the story of the prodigal sons? He talked about someone who had the full of experience of a home and then went off and wasted it and did whatever he could, but then came to his realization that he, what he ultimately wanted was to be back home. And that's surprising for some of us when we think that maybe, if, if you haven't even thought about God for the last decade, he's not been a priority in any of your decision making. When you come to hear who he really is and what he's really like, you come to discover that he's been with you all along. That though you maybe haven't given him a thought for 10 years, your deepest thoughts reveal your longing for him. Your longing ultimately to be home. So your experimental drug use, your experimental uh, relationships, all those kinds of things that for you are just saying, I think maybe the way to be happy in life is to do everything I want and just to make myself as happy as I can be because no one else is looking out for me. And so I just have to look out for myself. That even in those choices there is a deeper and a more fundamental longing that only God can fill. And that when you come to know him as he really is, you discover that he's been pursuing you all along. And the sense of security that that brings in your mind and heart and soul to the very God who made you is the God who loves you and the God who promises to return you home. And he says to his people later on that he's going to do this because of his name. Because that's how he sees us that he has made a promise to us and he's, we bear his name and so because of his name, he is going to do whatever needs to be done to recover us from wherever we've drifted to. Again, that's a sense of amazing security in verses 22 and on to say, listen, I'm going to do this because of my name, because I've made this promise, because you're a part of my family. And with that, you get all the privileges and protections that belong to being a part of the family. It's one of my favorite quotes from uh, Tim Keller, but he says, who's the only person at three in the morning that could interrupt the president for a glass of water? Whoever the president is. Who's the only person that could possibly get away with that? Someone who's part of his family. A little child. If there's conflict between other nations, if there's something going on, there's a whole bunch of people that can interrupt the evening or the day and say, hey, your attention is needed. But who has the complete freedom and privileges to interrupt someone, even of profound power and influence, for something so ordinary and basic? Children get to do that. And when we realize that 
the God who loves us is the God who puts his name on us and that we are a part of his family, then not only is it a promise of ultimately restoration in this national sense, but it should give us safety and security even individually. That we have the kind of access to someone who is so great and profound. And because of his great name, he's willing to do things for us. Then it goes on to say part of what he's willing to do is to give us a new heart. To take out a heart of stone and to replace it with a heart of flesh. And this is consistent fully with what Jesus promises in the gospel. That the transformation that God wants to do in your life and mine is a transformation from the inside out. To change who we are on the inside and change the things that we desire so that we don't run from home, so that we don't run our own way, but that we long and love to be in the full experience of what we get in the Father's heart. And so this promise of restoration and to change us from the inside out is a way of promising us that when we get back, we never leave again. Because even if we were given the option to leave, we wouldn't choose it. And that's the, the biggest and the best antidote to any temptation or sin. If you're really happy doing what you're doing, you're content in the relationships that you have, then if someone comes along and offers you something else, you don't even think about it for two seconds. I don't need that because I got this. <laughs> you can't draw me away into that experience because I'm so thankful for what I have in this experience. And so God promises us a new heart. Now, this is something that we still, I would say, struggle with as a nation to believe. It is so popular to believe that we can, we can perform at a high level and we can do all kinds of things and it doesn't matter what kind of people we are. If you, if you like sports at all, you hear that all the time. You know, it comes draft time and say, hey, you know, we're not hiring a Sunday school teacher here, right? We need a linebacker. We need someone who can do something. But, okay, that's true, but he won't be a linebacker very long if, if he gets kicked out of the league, right? Or in the professional sense, and someone who's good at sales and say, hey, we need someone who can do their job well. It doesn't matter how they treat their family. It doesn't matter how they treat neighbors. And we've allowed a separation of who a person is and what they can do. And that, allowing that only lasts for so long. And we even think that at the level of our politics. It doesn't matter what a person is on inside. It only matters what kind of a job they do. Now, it's true that character alone doesn't make someone competent. And there are all kinds of people that you would trust to babysit your kids, but you shouldn't trust them with any political power, okay? Because just because they're good people doesn't mean they're competent to manage large-scale projects. But recognizing that character is not sufficient is not the same as saying character is irrelevant. Character is absolutely relevant. And when someone is put in power who has a history of abusing power and then in power abuses it again, then it's a challenge to us. But we struggle with, with that. At a corporate level, at all kinds of levels, we, we think we can separate someone's performance and someone's character. And the truth is we can, but not for long. And you hear increasing stories, even just at the, at the school level of teachers, who, who, who might be good in a profession, but if they lack character, they get caught in the paper for all kinds of things that you say, what? How, how did that happen? 
How are you entrusted with authority over other people? Well, when the only terms of measurement that we're allowed to use are performance-related, then those kinds of things slip through the cracks. But in our attempt to secularize our society and so despiritualize everything, there's no way to do that without erasing the question of morals. What is a good person? And how do we encourage people to be good? If we can't answer those two basic questions, then how can we educate anyone? Or what are we educating them for? That's the basic question of a civilization, to say what is a good person and how do we encourage people to be good? One of the fastest things that undermines those questions is if we allow people who are not good to then make too many decisions. It undermines that. And so we long for goodness. We long for people to be changed on the inside, not just to do their job well, but to become well, to become whole, to pray for repentance when repentance is needed. And then the last thing he goes on to say is as God makes all of these amazing promises to his people, that they will always remember his grace. Even in this restoration, even in giving a new heart, he's not telling them he's going to delete all the files on the hard drive of their minds, that they'll never remember anything wrong that they've ever done. And that's sometimes the questions that we ask, when we, even when we think about eternity in heaven. Could we possibly enjoy heaven and eternity with God if we can remember the things that we've done wrong? Or if we can remember the wrongs that were done to us? And we don't get a full answer to that question in Scripture, but we get part of it here when he says to the people that they will remember their iniquities and their abominations so that even in restoration and even in a brand new heart, they will never forget God's grace. And there's no way for you and me to remember God's grace without remembering what we've done to need God's grace. But there again is something that only a loving home could provide. A place where someone who knows everything about us and we know knows everything about us and chooses to love us and says we're still a part of the family and we still belong. And in the book of Revelation, we get the same promise that all those who are around the throne are saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor, dominion and power so that everyone in heaven knows and remembers and praises God for what he did on the cross through his son. Well, there's no way to remember the Lamb who was slain without remembering what caused the sacrifice to be given. But the promise of Scripture is that in not forgetting, it's not that we will then have in the back of our minds something that constantly aggravates us or annoys us or brings us down and depresses us. But in the memory of what we've done will only be then an increased joy and an increased happiness and an increased security in how much God really loves us and that He loves us in spite of that. And so for us to sing of his amazing grace forever, yes, we will have an awareness of our need of that grace, 
but it won't take away a single aspect of our joy. But will only magnify it because it magnifies how great his love is. If God only loved us because we were obedient and did the things that he wanted, it'd be a pretty superficial kind of love. But if his love for us is so great that he's willing to bring us back home, he's willing to change us from the inside out, and he's willing to love us in spite of everything that we've done, that's good news. That's how much he cares for us. That's the truth that Ezekiel got to prophesy in Babylon, and that's the truth that we get to proclaim still today to anyone who feels displaced, to anyone who feels that they're not welcome home, that they do have this good, good Father that we sang about and that now we'll turn our attention to pray to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. for what could be reasons to despair, reasons to be discouraged, life events that could move us in a completely different direction. You give us the promise of change. You give us the promise of transformation. That you give us hope that we don't have in and of ourselves, that we can't bring about in our own strength, but that you promise to bring about in your love and your grace and your mercy and in your peace. And so we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes on you, to never deny or neglect the truth of your love, the truth of our sin, the truth of our dependence upon you, but to know that our joy only increases And our capacity to love and to grow only increases in our complete and total truthfulness to you. We thank you for your servant Ezekiel who was willing to proclaim the truth in Babylon. And we ask that you would help us to also be your people who proclaim truth in our day today. In your son's name we pray. Amen.